Attention, please. This is Dick Chapman, one of your official civil defense broadcasters with a special message. Military authorities have advised us that an enemy attack by air is imminent. This is a red alert. You are advised to go to your nearest shelter area immediately. Find shelter. There is not time to leave the city. Your state civil defense director has just issued the following instructions. Please remain calm. Every precaution will be taken for your protection. Keep your radio tuned to this place on the dial throughout the alert period for information. Telephone service to your home may be cut off to permit military and civil defense authorities to carry out vital operations. Do not attempt to join your family or your children if they are now separated. They will be cared for where they are. Obey your civil defense warden and find shelter now. Take shelter in your basement or in your nearest shelter area. If you can plug in your radio in the basement, take it with you. Use a portable radio set if you have one. Otherwise, turn up the volume of your radio so that you can hear it in the basement. Keep calm. Don't lose your head. If you are at work, obey your civil defense authorities. Go quickly and calmly to your designated shelter. If your children are at school, they are being directed to shelter by their teachers. If you are in an automobile, pull over to the curb and then go immediately to the nearest shelter area. Do not leave your car where it will block traffic. This station will continue to stay on the air throughout the alert period to bring you authentic information and official instructions. Stay tuned to 640 or 1240 kilocycles on your radio for official information. Refuse to listen to unauthorized rumors or broadcasts. This is your official civil defense broadcast. In accordance with the authority vested in me, I hereby declare a civil defense emergency to exist in the state of Minnesota. This will put into effect emergency plans for your welfare. Minnesota civil defense organizations including those of counties and municipalities, are directed to mobilize and act in accordance with approved plans. I am also calling a special session of both houses of the legislature to convene at a place and time I will designate in a later announcement. I ask that you cooperate with your civil defense officials. You will be advised of further developments by radio. Stay tuned for further information. This is Governor Elmer L. Anderson.
Welcome to the one-year anniversary of Destination Disaster. What a wild ride it has been this last year. Back last August, I decided to start a podcast that highlighted the disasters that we have experienced here in the United States. Since then, I have evolved this podcast to cover more disasters that occur throughout the world, as many countries lack a sense of preparedness and a solid foundation of emergency management protocols. I mainly started this podcast to introduce the general public to the world of emergency management and how the several thousand agencies here in the United States all coordinate and work together following any form of disaster. I remember my first experience with the disaster like it was yesterday. When I was only six years old, we watched Hurricane Isabel thrash her way through the city that I lived in. My mom had decided to take us over to my grandparents' house as my dad had been called into work at the emergency room due to the expected increase in medical traffic. Sitting with my grandfather at the table, we listened to the police scanner he had and just listened to the chaos erupt through the city. On one end of the city, there was a fire at a building. In other areas of the city, downed trees prevented ambulances from reaching those who needed assistance. And eventually, it was the police reporting power outages. I truly think this is where I found the passion for wanting to create and foster safer, more prepared communities. This podcast is a community for those who want to learn how to better prepare for the eventuality of a disaster. Over the last couple of months, I want to apologize for the delay in getting episodes out on time, as a health setback really took a lot out of me, and burnout at work has really made me want to take time to enjoy the summer weather and value life a little bit more. Now, as I continue to grow this podcast, in the coming weeks, I am hoping to publish an episode with a guest. I'm really conflicted on which disaster to cover, as I really want to ensure that I'm utilizing their knowledge adequately. So this week, we're going to cover a topic that I've wanted to cover since I started this show. It's a topic that has had a lot of resurgence since the war in Ukraine started. Nuclear weapons have long been a threat to the modern world, and the war in Ukraine has seemingly forced many agencies to reevaluate their plans and create campaigns to educate the larger public. This is something that we haven't really seen since the 1950s and 60s with civil defense TV campaigns, such as the one you just heard in the intro to the episode. We are no longer dealing with a singular threat from a communist regime, however. Since the fall of the Soviet Union, countries throughout the world have developed their own nuclear weapons as deterrents to prevent their adversaries from attempting any aggressive postures. Luckily, we have not seen the utilization of these weapons since the end of World War II, when the United States dropped the two atomic devices on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in their attempt to decapitate the imperial Japanese government. For those who are unaware of just the sheer amount of devastation these weapons caused, when the first bomb, dubbed Little Boy, detonated 1,800 feet over the city of Hiroshima, it instantly vaporized thousands in the ensuing explosion and killed an estimated 120,000 in the five days following and leveled a five-square-mile block of the city. Three days later, Fat Man exploded over the city of Nagasaki, leveling two square miles and killing 73,000 in an instant. Now in the modern world, we face threats from all angles and of all types. While there are world governments that possess thousands of nuclear warheads, the retaliation that would be witnessed would be insurmountable. Global nuclear war is unlikely to cause the end of the world that many have theorized, but the effects would be catastrophic to the planet's ecology. Now, before we get into the threat of this, let's take a quick look at the history of nuclear weaponry and what the future could encompass. Nuclear weaponry has been depicted in books for the last hundred years or so. H.G. Wells wrote about atomic weapons in the 1914 novel The World Set Free. Wells's atomic bombs have no more force than ordinary high explosives and are rather primitive devices detonated by a bomb thrower biting off a little celluloid stud. They consist of lumps of pure carolinium that induce a blazing continual explosion whose half-life is 17 days so that it is never entirely exhausted, so that to this day the battlefields and bomb fields of the frantic time in human history are sprinkled with radiant matter and so centers of inconvenient rays. 
The history of nuclear weapons within the United States begins in the early 1940s with the establishment of the Manhattan Project. The Manhattan Project was a research and development undertaken during World War II that produced the first nuclear weapons. It was led by the United States with the support of the United Kingdom and Canada. The history of nuclear weapons here within the United States can trace its establishment back to the Manhattan Project and the early 1940s. The Manhattan Project was a research and development undertaking during World War II that produced the first nuclear weapons. It was led by the United States with the support of the United Kingdom and Canada. From 1942 to 1946, the project was under the direction of Major General Leslie Groves of the United States Army Corps of Engineers. Nuclear physicist Robert Oppenheimer was the director of the Los Alamos Laboratory that designed the actual bombs. The Army component of the project was designated the Manhattan District as its first headquarters were in Manhattan. The place name gradually superseded the official code name, Development of Substitute Materials for the entire project. By 1945, the first nuclear weapon would be tested just outside of Socorro, New Mexico. Hosted atop a 100-foot tower, a plutonium device called Gadget detonated at precisely 5.30 a.m. over the New Mexico desert, releasing 18.6 kilotons of power, instantly vaporizing the tower and turning the surrounding asphalt and sand into green glass called trinitite. Seconds after the explosion, an enormous blast sent searing heat across the desert, knocking observers to the ground. Reports from witnesses came from as far as 200 miles away. A forest ranger 150 miles west of the blast said he saw a flash of fire, an explosion, and black smoke. An individual 150 miles north said the explosion lighted up the sky like the sun. A U.S. Navy pilot flying at 10,000 feet near Albuquerque, New Mexico, said it lit up the cockpit of his plane and was like the sun rising in the south. When he radioed Albuquerque air traffic control for an explanation, he was simply told, don't fly south. After the test, the Alamogordo Air Base issued a press release that simply stated, a remotely located ammunition magazine containing a considerable number of high explosives and pyrotechnics exploded, but there was no loss of life or limb to anyone. The actual cause of the blast was not disclosed until after the U.S. bombing of Hiroshima, Japan on August 6th. Since the first test and the implementation of the Manhattan Project, humanity entered into a new phase of warfare, one that could potentially lead to catastrophic effects that could last thousands of years. Honestly, I could do an entire episode on the history of nuclear weapons, but for the purposes of this episode, it's not all that pertinent. The main goal for this episode is to cover the threats, historic events, and the effects that a nuclear weapon detonation could have here within the United States. With how large and how dense some of our country's largest urban centers are, we aren't simply looking at localized destruction of a few city blocks. The size at which you see these weapons now are capable of killing millions. As you continue to listen to this episode, please realize that nuclear war isn't much out of the realm of possibility, especially when dealing with foreign actors that have no governmental alignment or rogue actors that simply want to watch the world burn. You would think with how dangerous these weapons are that there would be some sort of safeguard in place to prevent the mishandling of these weapons. However, there are 16 instances of nuclear events almost occurring somewhere in the world, all of which could have plunged the world into a nuclear disaster. On October 5, 1960, radar equipment located in Thule, Greenland, mistakenly identified the moonrise as a large Soviet nuclear launch. This event quickly escalated with NORAD moving into high alert status, but due to the Soviet president Nikita Khrushchev having been in New York City at the time, this event was quickly de-escalated. The Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 is widely regarded as one of the closest times the world has ever come to experiencing nuclear war. This was at a time when tensions between the Soviet Union and the United States reached an apex. 
The Cuban Missile Crisis of October 1962 was a direct and dangerous confrontation between the United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold War and was the moment when the two superpowers came closest to nuclear conflict. The crisis was unique in a number of ways, featuring calculations and miscalculations, as well as direct and secret communications and miscommunications between the two sides. The dramatic crisis was also characterized by the fact that it was primarily played out at the White House and the Kremlin level, with relatively little input from the respective bureaucracies typically involved in the foreign policy process. Had nuclear war erupted between the two nuclear superpowers at the time, the effects would have been catastrophic. Warning times for a missile launch from Cuba would have only allowed mere minutes in some cities such as Miami to find suitable shelter. The last scenario that I'm going to cover is the Persian Gulf War. During this war, the Iraqi Republic launched Scud missiles at Saudi Arabia and Israel and possessed a large cache of weapons of mass destruction. This, along with Saddam Hussein's previous threat to burn half of Israel with chemical weapons, led to fears that Saddam Hussein would order the use of chemical weapons against the U.S.-led coalition or Israel. Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir and Israeli Air Force Commander-in-Chief Avihu Ben Nun both warned that an Iraqi chemical attack would trigger massive retaliation, implying that Israel would retaliate with nuclear weapons. At the same time, U.S. Secretary of Defense Dick Cheney, General Norman Shortskopf Jr., and British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher all emphasized that the use of WMD against coalition forces would lead to a nuclear attack on Iraq. U.S. Secretary of State James Baker directly warned his counterpart, Tariq Aziz, that the United States had the means to exact vengeance in the event of an Iraqi resort to WMD. After the war, the Defense Intelligence Agency credited these threats with deterring Iraq from launching chemical attacks on coalition forces. Nevertheless, Saddam Hussein did have a contingency plan to launch WMD-armed warheads at Tel Aviv in the event that he became cut off from Iraqi forces' leadership or if the Iraqi government was about to collapse which almost certainly would have triggered a retaliatory nuclear response from Israel. Saddam ultimately never deemed this option necessary because he never felt as if his government was about to collapse. As you just heard, human error, misjudgment, and sheer ignorance have all nearly led to nuclear conflict somewhere in the world. Had any of these events escalated, we'd all be living in a far different world. The next portion of this episode, we're going to discuss a fear that I think many intelligence agencies have come to embody. Since the fall of the Soviet Union, nuclear material has become far greater to obtain, therefore making it easier to develop clandestine nuclear weapons. A terrorist nuclear bomb could turn the heart of any modern city into a smoking ruin. One study estimated that a terrorist bomb with an explosive power equivalent to 10,000 tons of TNT, smaller than that of the Hiroshima bomb, detonated at Grand Central Station on a typical workday would kill 500,000 people and cause $1 trillion in direct economic damage with total damage including economic effects going far beyond that. America and the world would never be the same. The effects just wouldn't affect the city in which the detonation occurred. Depending on the radiological payload, we're looking at a significant fallout that could spread to adjacent municipalities, forcing the exposure of even more citizens. Areas affected could be left uninhabitable for decades following a detonation. For the purposes of this episode, we're going to use the tried-and-true method of a theoretical scenario. Since this topic contains a lot of what-ifs and hypotheticals, I think it's best we use a scenario. For the purposes of this episode, there are depictions of death, dismemberment, and panic. For those of you who are squeamish, I advise you to either skip this portion or listen at your own risk. A nuclear device has just detonated in a large city somewhere within the United States. No matter how fast you run, those within the immediate blast radius are immediately consumed by a ball of fire hotter than the surface of the sun. 
Buildings are decimated as the wind blast screams out in all directions, followed by a shockwave that deals even more catastrophic damage. If you are within the immediate blast area, there's no sense in running, as the fireball will consume you and leave nothing but a pile of dust. Unfortunately, the blast that this explosion was associated with was a warhead of approximately 1 megaton. Any one or anything would be instantly vaporized at just over half a mile wide. Those within 7.5 miles of the explosion are subjected to third degree burns over portions of the body that are left exposed. While initially painless, third degree burns can cause severe skin damage and could ultimately require amputation. The chances of survival at this distance away from the explosion are slim as fires will be raging, large buildings would have collapsed, and roadways would be impassable. Luckily, you decided to take the day off and spend it at your parents' house, just outside of the thermal radiation exposure limit. However, you were still close enough to experience the heat and wind blast that ripped through your parents' home, destroying windows, blowing down trees, and knocking out the power. As you rush outside, you look downtown and see a massive mushroom cloud over what was once the city. The mushroom cloud rises and begins to drop radioactive dust particles. Your phone finally manages to pick up the emergency alert, ushering you and your family into the basement for safety. Officials urge you to board all windows, seal all doorways, and turn off all air conditioning units to prevent pulling in the contaminated air. The broadcast states that you should be prepared to shelter in place for two weeks or more depending on the radiation levels found outside. In the immediate aftermath, the United States goes into DEFCON 1, activating all contingency plans to include moving the president into a secure facility and moving all cabinet personnel into safe areas to ensure continuity of government. Intelligence agencies are racing to identify the perpetrator, and this includes listening in on chatter from different terrorist organizations and foreign governments. Within the city, people who survived the initial blast begin digging themselves from the rubble and aimlessly staring at the mushroom cloud. Emergency radio broadcasts attempt to disseminate instructions for those in the affected radius. Emergency personnel call for those able to, to move away from the blast site and report to a decontamination site for immediate registration and decontamination. This process is also known as hot zone management and describes the process of moving those who have been affected into a safe area to begin the process of decontamination. The exclusion zone, or hot zone, is the area of actual contamination and has the highest potential for exposure to hazardous substances. The contamination reduction zone, also known as the warm zone, is known as the transition area where decontamination operations take place and is where first responders are staged to receive those affected following the blast. The final zone is known as the support zone or cold zone and is used as a staging area for support personnel and planning area for personnel to remain safe and away from contamination. 
The initial response is bound to be highly congested, with many agencies clamoring to stage and begin response activities. After the initial response, military units trained in seaburn or chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, and high-yield explosives respond and begin taking over response operations. Nest teams or nuclear emergency support teams have specialized equipment that allow them to work in and around the hot zone to look for survivors who look as though they may survive. Within the nest teams, there are several subunits dedicated to specific actions all on-call, ready to deploy worldwide rapidly to accidents involving nuclear weapons or components. In the days following the initial response, agencies have stopped the flow of traffic throughout the entire metropolitan area. Citizens outside of the immediate blast area are still told to shelter in place, and ecological response organizations respond to the affected area to begin aiding and cleaning the affected waterways and ecosystems. The nuclear fallout has fallen and contaminated several waterways, estuaries, and water treatment facilities. Bottled water and food is dispensed to those at staging areas. The aerial measuring system is deployed, composed of several aircraft equipped with sensitive radiation detection systems to provide real-time measurements of air and ground radiation contaminations. These teams remain on call 24-7, 365 days per year to respond to such an event. At the site, the NEST Consequence Management Response Team is on the ground providing technical expertise to the first response agencies and establishes the initial field operations. Ground Zero requires extensive investigation, as forensic analysis is the key to identifying the perpetrator of the attack. The Department of Energy's Forensics Operations Team investigates post-detonation debris to identify any key signatures that could be used in the identification of the perpetrator. In the weeks following the blast, specialized search and rescue teams are finally able to work their way into the blast area to survey and identify any potential survivors. Unfortunately, those who were in this area when the bomb detonated it is highly unlikely that they survived or eventually succumbed to their wounds. Search and rescue teams now work to gather the deceased and identify those in an effort to inform family members. It is likely that due to the third-degree burns suffered, that easy identification will not be possible and must be conducted either through dental records or any identifying marks. I hate to say it, but this isn't the end of the story. We're looking at years of recovery and decades of rebuilding. The affected city would be in ruins, and the number of resources needed would likely result in the largest recovery operation the world has ever seen. This is why I strive to always speak about preparedness and ensure that all of you are ready for any event that could occur. I urge you to prepare. There are several videos available on YouTube that can teach you how to further prepare for such an event and the necessary items that you should keep in and around your home. If you enjoyed the show, please show your support by rating it 5 stars on your streaming platform. Once again, I want to thank you for supporting the show for the last year and hope that you will continue to do so. I have great plans for the show and hope to share those milestones with all of you. Until next time, this has been Destination Disaster.